Good morning. Let's start uh, today's class with prayer. Father God, thank you for uh, magnificent weather and this season and what, what it represents. Um, we ask that you that you be here with us today, that you guide our study, that you uh, open our hearts, open our minds, um, enlighten us, and let us love the truth that you reveal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, today's lesson, or this week's lesson, Faith That Works, um, I don't know if anybody else finds just a little bit of tension or a little bit of dichotomy when you consider salvation by faith alone, but you can't be saved without works. Is it about works? Is it not about works? Um, how important are they? Um, we're going to try to unpack that a little bit, uh, hopefully, today. Uh, the memory text. Let's look at Saturday's lesson. The memory text. For as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That's from James 2.26. Any thoughts on what, uh, what James is talking about here? Do we think he's talking about the... The first sleeping death, or do you think he's talking about here, the body without spirit is dead? And we say without spirit, we mean without character, without personality, absence of life. Lori, my first thought was that you know, when, when Adam was formed from dust, dust, God breathed the breath of life, the pneuma, the pneuma. spirit into him. Right. So the spirit is God-given. So the... Um, if if we follow that line of thinking, then the works come from a transformation of heart. But they are also God given. Correct. And I, I think they have to come from that. Yes. Otherwise, they're just works. And we're going to talk much more about that. I wanted to read this this verse, James two twenty six, in a little bit more context, starting um, in verse fourteen. And I'm reading from the message. It says, "Dear friends." Do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith. Fit together, hand in glove. So, what is faith? What do you think of when you hear the word faith? Trust. Trust. We've talked about this some, some in our class uh, before. In fact, I, I reached back into the archives in the 2009 vintage uh, and found another class where the subject was faith. And yes, trust, belief in something. When I looked up the word in the dictionary, the word faith, one of the definitions said that it is belief that is not based on proof. And is that the kind of faith that we think God is asking us to have in him? In the class in 2009, uh, Tim compared 
this definition very closely with the definition of superstition. And they lined up pretty closely. So I have some quotes that, uh, that might give us some insight into what God is asking of us when he, when he asks for trust. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. It requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. He does not dishonor the human understanding, but far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill, to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. That's from Our High Calling, page 310. Did you hear any reference to the natural law of exertion in that quote? Where she's telling us to strenuously exercise these skills of reason and ration, rationale, uh, and seeking out the truth. Another quote God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason, and this testimony is abundant. Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence upon which to rest their faith. So faith is critical. Trust is critical. Does it matter what we're trusting in? Does it matter what we're putting our faith in? Faith in a lie will not have a sanctifying influence upon the life or the character. No error is truth nor can it be made truth by repetition or by faith in it. Sincerity will never save a soul from the consequences of believing an error. The Lord does not want us to have a blind credulity and call that the faith that sanctifies. The truth is, the principle that sanctifies, and there, the, the truth is the principle that sanctifies, and therefore it becomes us to know what is truth. We must compare spiritual things with spiritual. We must prove all things, but hold fast only to that which is good, that which bears the divine credentials, which lays before us the true motives and principles which should prompt us to action. This is where our good works should be coming from. So Saturday's lesson in the quarterly tells a story of a respected doctor who's an elder in a high-profile church. He prayed eloquently. He filled in for the pastor and preached when he was out, gave generously, encouraged and inspired others to give. And then something happened that was rather shocking to the folks in the church. And everything was obviously not as it seemed. And is it ever, really? Uh, I found a quote from a person named Anias Nin, and he says, We don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And isn't that true, that we tend to, to either see only what we want to see, 
or color things through our own distorted lens. So the end of the story says, quote, though we must leave all judgment in God's hands, the doctor's actions certainly call into question the reality of his faith. you have any thoughts about that statement? Which actions? Well, he uh, ended up apparently... I understand, but the, the point is, yes. you know, they're choosing certain actions Correct. to make judgments on. Only. Correct. Correct. And they're not using other actions to base their judgment on. Exactly. And so I'm not certain that... Uh, I would draw the same conclusions, not try to defend. Absolutely. Yes. And this is another case of how do we judge works and behaviors. Is works ministering to others? Is works controlling our own behaviors? Right. But the whole issue is, it's way more interesting to talk about his downfall than his good deeds. Of course. And I question why you put this in the quarterly. I agree, but I think it's interesting because it is so... All of us recognized the story. You know what I mean? It didn't sound like a foreign concept to any of us when we read it. It's, it's a pretty normal course of action. And I thought about, well, are there any other examples in the Bible of folks who may have done or performed actions that would call into question the reality of their faith? Essentially, the Bible is full of anyone in Christ. Almost every character. I mentioned Rahab, I mentioned Samson, I mentioned David, I mentioned Peter. I mean, yeah. It's a long list. Paul, Manasseh. Absolutely. There's, I've come to the conclusion there is no heroes, only life lessons. <laughs> exactly. There's one hero. That's it. So, the question is, should we use a person's works to determine if a person's faith is quote-unquote real? We don't need to judge anyone. I, I don't think we're in a position to do that at all, ever. <laughs> We're put in situations all the time where we have to, and by their fruits you shall know them. And of course, their fruits could be uh, thorns with roses. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not very good. But do any of us have anything other than thorns and roses? Well, some thorns are very obvious. I mean, just <laughs> outrageous. But is that okay? Can God use our imperfect works to still be a blessing to someone? To still be an answer to someone's prayer? To still meet someone's needs? Yeah, he might be able to. He works all things together for good. Lord, help us if he cannot use imperfect actions and works. To be a blessing to someone else. Because I've got nothing else to give. Yes. Uh, this doctor, we can't judge him. He evidently felt his need. He was a great speaker. Exactly. And what he was going through is probably what, why he was such a good speaker, because of his need for Christ. But he didn't hold on to that need. Right. He let go. Yes, I mean, Tim has used the, the example that we, we are all terminal. We are all patients on the AIDS floor. 
and we are pointing and laughing and mocking each other because we're displaying different symptoms. So the person that has pneumonia is ridiculed by the person that has lesions and vice versa. And I mean, we don't get it. We are all so in need of a healing remedy. And I don't, I don't think it's just pointless to point out anything in anyone else. I got, I got myself <laughs> to worry about. I got the plank in my own eye. Right. You know? Our hands is too narrow to see the whole picture. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, Ruffles. Yeah, Absolutely. All, all these statements are, are I think, uh, <clears throat> wise. To her point, however, we are, we are called to be discerning. We're called to judge people as trustworthy or not trustworthy. We're called to make... Um, intelligent decisions about um, character and, and choices that we make um, and understanding that sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. When, when Scripture tells us, you know, judge not lest you be judged, I think this is, this is speaking of a, a, a ju judgment of eternity, you know, whether or not this person is fit for heaven or not. That, that's not... That's certainly not our um, call, but we are we are called to be wise as serpents and, and you know, gentle as doves. No question. And I mean, I think again, what is that? What is that judgment about? It's about discerning truth from a lie, but it's also about a, a placement or a degree of compassion. Because if you're seeing someone that you're judging as really in need, I mean, your the level of compassion for that person should be multiplied because you know that they are they're in worse condition yes well if we think of the analogy of being sick and going to a physician to help us you know sin is a sickness and we go to a physician in you know, Jesus Christ to heal us well I would not want to go I mean if I was sick with sin I would not want to go to a physician, taking that example that you gave, to a physician like this man who has Ebola or who has some disease that's very infectious. He's coughing on you. He's coughing on others. Yeah. So we have to be discerning. Like, uh, yeah. And I think Tim mentioned last week the, the church being a, a hospital for the spiritually sick. But you would not want to go to a hospital where the sick are running the hospital. Yeah. I think that's well said. All right. Any other comments about that? Before we move to Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson talks about a dead faith. And so here we're asked again to contrast the concept of salvation by faith alone versus the text in James that says, if someone has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And I think what we do here, we go back to what we've been talking about, what is focus on the order of events and the motivating factors that must initiate and compel our good works. So as we've discussed, faith is trust, evidence-based, reasonable, rational trust. In this class, we've studied that only when we discover the truth about who God really is and what God's character is like, can we dispel the lies and distortions about his character and be won back to trust. Only when this happens are we able to open our hearts to him, open our hearts to his Holy Spirit, 
and let that love be poured into our hearts. That perfect love casts out the fear and selfishness that's there naturally. And the healing remedy is poured in. The healing remedy that Jesus achieved for us through his life, death, and resurrections. Then his ways, his methods, his principles become ours. We live his life. He writes his law of love on our hearts and minds. And if this sounds familiar, it's basically the exact opposite of the sinful acts cascade. So if you remember that from this class, believing lies breaks the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust spawns fear and selfishness in our hearts. Fear and selfishness causes us to act act out and perform behaviors, bad behaviors, destructive behaviors that we call sin. Well, this is the exact opposite of that, where we are one back to trust, we open our hearts, his love is poured in, then that love shines out once the fear and selfishness are purged, and it results in acts that are Christ-like, that are other-centered, that are unselfish. Those are the good works. Yes? And this is a continuum, it's a process. For sure. And, and each... Everyone who has gone through a conversion experience is in a different, uh, different part on that pathway. Who knows where the physician in Sabbath's example was on that path to to symptom eradication? Exactly. Well, I think about the the thief on the cross. Right. Not very many good works opportunities there. He basically had one: was to believe and to trust and to open the heart. So for sure. We are witness to the other thief. And the people on the ground. So yeah, the, the quarterly asks, how can we learn to better express our faith through works while protecting ourselves from the deception that our works can help save us? And I ask the question, can we ever protect ourselves from ourselves? I have found the answer to be no. <laughs> In general. And I mean, isn't it amazing? I don't maybe it's just me. But I don't have to do too many nice things or perform too many good works till I start feeling dissatisfied with myself. Even though it was nothing in me, it was nothing in and of me, nothing good can ever come out, you know what I'm saying, without, without some sort of transforming spirit. And I mean, I think we're, we have to guard, we have to keep our focus on Christ. We have to keep our focus on where the transformation is coming from, and keep a focus on others is the best way to not start looking at ourselves and being very proud. Well, it takes away as a church of quit having the missionary period and raising our hands of marking on a card how many people we helped this week and how many uh, pieces of literature we gave away. And uh, So they feed into that, uh, that concept of looking inward at self. Monday's lesson is entitled Saving Faith. And the lesson uses James 2.18 for this lesson. And it says that someone will say, one person has faith, another has actions. My answer is, show me how anyone can have faith without actions. I will show you my faith by my actions. And again, you're going to hear a repeating trend in this lesson, that works are only good works if they spring from faith. Faith and works are inseparable. They are two sides of the same coin. One cannot exist without the other. 
Just like a coin has two sides, one is the head and the other is the tail, the faith comes first, then the good works, motivated by and originating from the heart transformation we just discussed. One of the founders of our church thought this concept was so critical, she wrote an entire book called Faith and Works. This is a quote at the bottom of Monday's lesson. If man cannot, by any of his good works, merit salvation, then it must be holy of grace, received by man as a sinner because he receives and believes in Jesus. It is wholly a free gift. Justification by faith is placed beyond controversy, and all this controversy is ended as soon as the matter is settled that the merits of fallen man in his good works can never procure eternal life for him. Yes. That's the point here that we often talk in this class about how the law is a mirror right. or a diagnostic tool. <clears throat> Works are the same thing. If you look at a plant and it's not growing, it doesn't have fresh leaves coming out and everything else, you know it's in trouble. Right. And if you look at your personal life and if changes aren't being made, if things aren't flowing out, mm-hmm. then you, it's a diagnostic tool. And so there are natural results of life. Yes. Green on a, a plant or whatever color, etc., and additional growth. And so your works or your behavior is an outgrowth of those that growth. I totally agree. And I would say, but the works can grow out even without the heart transformation. And if you've done any gardening, I've had plants that are actually green and that are producing fruit, and if I pull them up or pull them out, the roots are infested, maybe not forever, you know what I mean? But there can be a period of time where the outward growth does not reflect exactly what's inside. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what happens when the good works are there by obligation or by force and are not motivated by heart transformation. So Monday's lesson also, uh, in fact, several places in the lesson contrast Paul's view of good works and James, and they appear to be a little bit diametrically opposed or at least come to different uh, conclusions. So Paul's attitude was not against good works per se, but he was very much against using good works or crediting good works as a means to salvation. I used this text a couple weeks ago. I still like it. I like the way Paul puts it in Galatians 2.16, where he's talking about the Pharisees, the Jews. We knew very well that we were not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? Well, we tried it. We had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah and not by trying to be good. He also says in Ephesians 2, 7 through 10, Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next, to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea. It's all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It is God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. 
If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten for us, ready for us to do, and work that we had better be doing. And isn't that true? Um, he, he never asks us for works or asks that we do things that he has not enabled us to do, empowered us to do, created us to do. And that's, I mean, that's where the faith comes in. Because if you're like me and you think, well, I can't get up and teach. I'm melancholy, phlegmatic. This is, if you know anything about those personality types, then you know that this is a little bit of a miracle. <laughs> so it's taking that, that step of faith, that leap of faith, knowing, believing in his promise when he says, if I've called you, I've enabled you. I've given you the, the abilities and, and the power to do. Let's look at Tuesday's lesson. Go a little darker into the faith of demons. <clears throat> Can someone uh, read for me the third paragraph in, on uh, Tuesday's lesson? Starts with the most fundamental statement. The most fundamental statement of faith in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Known as the Shema, because this is the Hebrew word it begins with, this verse neatly summarizes belief in one God. Every other biblical teaching flows from this cardinal truth. Any thoughts about these assertions of rather absolutes that the most fundamental statement of faith in the Old Testament and that every other biblical teaching flows from that cardinal truth. Do you agree with that? No. I was just going to say that's too, that's too hard and cold. Right. I mean, if you remember, if you remember the days of taking true and false tests, where your teacher advised you to look for the words "always" and "never" and things like that, and, and things are almost always "never," "always" or "never." So, I mean, I'm not sure what's what's to be gained by by making such such absolute statements, but I'm not sure that I agree. It says nothing about the character of of the one God, uh, the Lord. And, and when it says the demons believe and, and are afraid, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of God do they actually believe in? I mean, what, what character attributes do they... They said, we know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. Have you come to torment us before our time? Uh, they, they believe in a God that's going to torture and use his power to... Destroy them. Right. I mean, I don't argue. I mean, I think we're we're taught pretty pretty clearly that in the very darkened minds of the Israelites, that God was trying to um, teach them that there is only one God, and that He was willing to even be misunderstood and have the the negative actions or the negative things credited to Him, as well as the positive saving things. 
in order to get their minds around the fact that there was just one god instead of all of these idols and, and fake gods that they saw surrounding them. So I do, I do think that he was trying to, to persuade them of that, but he was also trying to persuade them of who he was, the character of the one god. Mm-hmm. Yes? That is so true about the character of the one god. Because I grew up in the Middle East where our God is the same Allah as the Muslims, the same Allah as the Jews, the same Allah as the Christians. And the thing you see written on all those black flags of the, is there's no God but God. The same as the Shema of the Jews. Uh, But their understanding of God's character is totally different than our understanding. And that's what makes the difference, the character of God. That's that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So, next paragraph talks about what Russell was talking about, um, that even the demons believe. An An intellectual faith that has no effect on how we act is useless. Even demons have that type of faith. The quarterly... Quotes 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That same text in, in the message says, The Spirit makes it clear that as time goes on, some are going to give up on the faith and chase after demonic illusions put forth by professional liars. These liars have lied so well and for so long that they've lost their capacity for truth. So my perception of what this text is, talk- is talking about, has, I think, has changed pretty dramatically over the last several years. So at one point, <coughs> I thought maybe this is talking about an increased interest in all things magical, um, popularity of the supernatural, mediums, state of the dead, things like that. I mean, if you read or watch or are familiar with pop culture, you understand all the way down to children's books, cartoons, things like that. For sure, this subject matter has, uh, has gained popularity. But now I'm thinking... Could Paul also be referencing those who adopt Satan's methods and practices of using fear and coercion? Or could he be referencing those who preach about an angry, arbitrary, vengeful, imperial God who must punish sinners in order to be just and enforce his laws? One of our favorite Desire of Ages quotes in this class, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This is a satanic picture of God being presented. And by its very definition, are Satan's beliefs, distortions, lies about God's character, the doctrines of devils, or demonic illusions? What are your thoughts? I mean, that's harsh language. I mean, the time spent in this class, the concepts learned in this class, I have to be honest with you, have made me uncomfortable sitting in church a lot of times, squirming in the pew. 
Because I hear this picture of God preached in many pulpits, really close to here. And is it just me, or has the, the natural law concepts that we're learning, the designer versus dictator view, has it made you hypersensitive to having an imposed law, imperial dictator God presented to you? I think if you carefully parse out the Apostle Paul, he could not be any clearer on his judgment against works of the law versus works of faith. It's like the sister was referring to earlier how we take them. Some churches still do, where you take a missionary report and you take maybe what was a work of faith on Wednesday and turn it into a works of the law on Sabbath. That's exactly what you were talking about. So, that's the negative. Last week, I attended the Connect Church service at the Academy. Pastor Litchfield shocked me by using some material from a book called Finding the Father by Herb Montgomery. It shocked me because the ideas and the picture of God presented were incredibly consistent with what we teach here. And I got afraid for him for a minute. (laughs) Because I wasn't sure he knew (laughs) what that might cost him. Uh, The book's premise is that we have been lied to about God and have long accepted an incorrect picture of him. Even the few passages Litch quoted were so consistent with what we teach in this class, I downloaded the book pretty quickly, and have been reading it all week, and I wanted to read you a few passages from it. Today, loving relationships are many times the weakest perceived quality of those who claim to be God's people. We have become more concerned with being correct than with being godly, right rather than righteous. Intellectually and behaviorally correct, we have allowed love both in our understanding of God and as the principle by which we relate to those around us to wither by the wayside. I believe this is largely because we have failed to understand, not in our treatment of others, but in our own perception, our own heart-level understanding, what it truly means that God is love. The root of both our misplaced spiritual zeal and our religious malaise is that deep within our hearts, we have embraced silently and subtly, even unknowingly, a wrong picture of God. Could it be that we don't have a clue what God is really like? I contend that we have been told things about God that are not true. He is not what we think. If we are not encountering the fulfillment of every one of our desires by our experience with God, we still don't see him for who he really is. He is beautiful if we could just see him. If our minds, hearts, and eyes could be opened for just a moment, there would be a strange resonance inside each of our aching hearts saying, this is it. This is what I have always been seeking. This is the reason why I was made. We need to ask ourselves, how can my internal picture of God be corrected? The answer although quite simple, is profound. There is a doorway through which we will find ourselves surrounded by amazing love, extravagant grace, and intimate friendship. This doorway is the greatest revelation ever to grace our planet. 
It is the revelation of God's character, made not by someone else, but by God himself through the transparent veil of humanity. See why I'm digging this book. It's a good one. It's published by Review and Herald. It contains quotes from Mrs. White. I have not researched Herp or Gumry, but it sounds like he's an Adventist. Yes. Herp was uh, at the Good News Tour oh, nice. a few years ago. He's part of the larger group, or larger view group. Well, no. Although he passed away last year, I believe. Oh, I didn't know that either. So, yeah. Well, anyway, the book's called Finding the Father. I'm recommending it. Yes. There are three different occasions that I know of that the pastor at Collegeville Church has referenced that book as well. Pastor not, not, yes, yeah. Pastor Smith. Yeah. Okay, let's move to Wednesday's lesson. We're getting farther than last week. Wednesday's lesson talks about Abraham's faith. And I mean, we all know the, I don't know, unconscionable story of Abraham being asked to to sacrifice his son, those of you who are parents, put yourself in that position, and if you can even go there, or trust. So, the quarterly is asking us to compare some passages, again, from James and Paul. They both quote the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 15, 6, but they seem to arrive at, at opposite conclusions regarding being justified by either faith or works. We've discussed the basis of Abraham being declared righteous in this class several times before. The key order of events is again that Abraham believed or trusted, then it was credited to him as righteousness. So I have some text here and then we'll just we'll discuss. Romans 4, 20 through 25. That's why it is said, Abraham was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. But it's not just Abraham, it's also us. The same thing gets said about us when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life. When the conditions were equally hopeless, the sacrifice of Jesus sets us right with God. Galatians 3, 5 through 6, answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, Does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? Don't these things happen among you just as they happened with Abraham? He believed God, and that act of belief was turned into a life that was right with God. One more text from our our quarterly chapter, James 2.21-24. Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of the word believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his actions It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in good works? Yes, Wendell. All all these texts talk about Abraham being put right with God. 
I think it needs to be emphasized that none of them talk about God being put right with Abraham. That is correct. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that, that it's by our trusting who God is that we begin the healing process. And we are going on a direction of healing. Yes. And that it's not God is whitewashing the books, you know, because, and declaring us righteous. And, de- and declaring us righteous or being healed in his relationship to us or whatever is us being healed to God. Mm-hmm. That's well said. And I mean, the whole, the whole process of justification, which we've compared to justifying your margins in a word processor, lining things up, putting things right, again, it's all us. God has never changed. God has never moved. The only thing that got out of harmony with God in the Garden of Eden was man. And so this justification process is all about changing us and putting us back where we were originally designed to be in relationship with God. Again, to Wendell's point, we've come to we've come to think that God um, declared Abraham righteous, even though he wasn't. Because I mean, after all, he lied about his wife, and he is a polygamist, and you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, this is God making an accurate diagnosis of Abraham's character, because, because God. That's not a lie. He's not a liar. He's saying, this is what righteousness looks like. He's not a liar. And he's an accurate diagnostician. Right. He always mm-hmm. makes an accurate diagnosis. And he's the only one that can see the heart. He's the only one that can make that determination. So we're going to go back and talk about what we were talking about a little bit ago, where whether good works are necessarily an outward sign of faith. And we talked about the juxtaposition of using our discernment, knowing folks by their fruit, as opposed to being in a position of judgment. So, a couple weeks ago, we talked about some big biblical examples of folks that were consistently performing good works, but really not experiencing any sort of heart transformation or change in their character. If you remember that, we talked about the Israelites and their, what ended up being an obsession with rituals and Sabbaths and feasts and things that they were instructed by God to do, but lost, lost the message. We talked about the Pharisees, who we just read in Galatians had the best list of rules ever. And they kept them, they kept them all. But they, they killed the God that they were looking for because they didn't recognize him. So I've got a couple more quotes about what happens when the works are just about the works. They're all about behaviors. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey when the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclination. We may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. That was from Christ Object Lessons. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. 
by such a one by such a one service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully and in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. That was from Signs of the Times. Unless you think we're the only folks or the only denomination who understand this concept, I have another quote from someone who spent her entire life in unselfish, sacrificial service to others and obviously understood the concept that it is not all about your works. I pray that you will understand the words of Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. Ask yourself, how has he loved me? Do I really love others in the same way? Unless this love is among us, we can kill ourselves with work, and it will only be work, not love. Work without love is slavery. Any idea who said that? That's Mother Teresa. Any thoughts about that? I mean, I got to tell you, I grew up doing what I was supposed to do, not really loving it. Does anybody know what I mean? I mean, I, I, for a number of reasons. I mean, one, there was the, there was the rebellion or the, the tendency to rebel, but there was just a huge lack of understanding, lack of understanding of natural law concepts, lack of understanding of what God is really like, why we're being asked. I mean, there's a reason we're being asked to do good works. Our natural law concepts teach us by beholding we become changed. The natural law of exertion. Can we really become like Christ if we never do anything that Christ did? It's not possible. So, in the, I think this is in the teacher's uh, section of the quarterly. They listed, um, as we know, there were some there were some disagreements or some strong conversations in the New Testament between Peter and Paul and some other folks about circumcision, whether Jews should associate with non-Jews, the whole Gentile thing. And uh, they listed some similarities between circumcision being flaunted as a badge of righteousness in Paul's day, which it was, and some distinguishing Seventh-day Adventist behaviors, Sabbath-keeping, no drugs, no alcohol, no smoking, vegetarian, etc. There's a list. And asked, do we risk having these behaviors become merely a badge of righteousness? And how do we avoid that trap? It asks, is there a place for taking pride in the good things we do? <laughs> I can't think of one. And like I said, the only way I know of to avoid falling into that trap is, is maintaining focus on Christ, maintaining focus outward on others. But I do see some tendency toward badges of righteousness sometimes with our behaviors. 
Let's look at Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson talks about the faith of Rahab. Do you have any idea how Rahab, who was a prostitute, she was a liar, any ideas how she made it into the hall of faith, so to speak? Seems like a, an odd pick. God knew what he was doing. Yes, right. I think one point is to to remember that in the Bible it doesn't say you lied very well (laughs) or you did some other bad behavior very well. Right. You know, whenever um, whenever Elijah was was asked to kill, I don't know, five hundred people. I mean, the prophet, whatever. It doesn't say you cut them down really well, mm-hmm. you know, etc. So in spite of some of these behaviors and even some of the things that maybe were necessary because of, of the sin that was all around, and it, it, it was, it was a, a tragedy, but it had to be done. And no commendations are given for uh, behavior that was not godlike. Right. I agree with that. And I mean, well said. None of the people that we're talking about. I mean, David is not commended for being a very crafty murderer or an excellent adulterer. This is not what you get credit for. But he, had, he, he was a man after God's own heart. That's where the credit is given. Yes. The same way that uh, Doubting Thomas was commended by Jesus for finally believing. And he said, blessed are those who believe through what they've heard. Right. The same way it was with Rahab. She had heard about the God of the Israelites. And the only conclusion is she she was accepted in by her faith in what she had heard. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, this this quote in in Thursday's lesson from Patriarchs and Prophets, I didn't really know this, but she's saying that many of the inhabitants of Jericho had heard stories about the God of Israel, had heard about his conquests, about his power, All these events were known to the inhabitants of Jericho. There were many who shared Rahab's conviction, though they refused to obey it. So to me, this is where how she makes it into the Hall of Faith. She had the courage, even if she didn't have the know-how or the methods, maybe, down pat. Her heart was for God. She believed God. She wanted to follow him. And she did in the best way she knew how. Um... My notes say that she was saved um, not because of her dishonesty, but in spite of it. Her heart was for God. She trusted him, even though she was not spiritually mature or well-versed in his methods. And again, we talked about, thank goodness, that perfect works are not required to perfect our faith. It's the trust. It's the step in that direction. I imagine that in her line of work, she got very adept at lying to, in, to inquiring spouses or to others. <laughs> and so um, this was maybe not to her advantage right. of her Christian walk. Right. But, you know, it was used in spite of that. And quite effective. 
I, uh, following along that line that it brought up was, uh, I thought about in thinking of others, uh, how far along they're doing acts of love. And always acts of love, doing of love. But I thought a mentally ill person or a slow person, let's say, we on the outside don't know what they're doing. They could be doing one little thing we don't see, but it's in relationship to God, he's right there with him. So, But we can't see all of these things that... We can only see what we see. As you say, we look through our own eyes. Yeah. Yeah. The Good Samaritan is another good example of the grace of God. I don't know how well he knew God, but he had heard of him. Maybe through the woman at the well. I don't know. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And he was doing right because it was right. Not because it was a rule. Not because he was obligated to. Because it was the right thing to do. Um. So, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, too. We talked about, for doers of the word, what should we be doing? And we went through the list of praying for our enemies, loving those that hurt us, um, heaping coals of fire, uh, turning the other cheek, offering a coat along with your shirt, those kind of things, which I think also line up with with the good works of faith, as well as... The verse that tells us, I mean, this is the base needs where we feed and we clothe and we give water and we visit in prison. Um, and I mean, when, when you look at the story of the end of time, when we're down to just two groups, it's just the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, and there's folks on both sides that have the exact same list of works. And they're con- they saw the, we- the tear side is convinced that they were doing these behaviors in the name of God. But they never got converted. Their hearts never transformed. They never became like Christ. And Christ tells them, I don't know you. I mean, that's how important the motivation and the what initiates the work is. It's not about the actions. It's about the God that motivates the actions. Any other thoughts about this week's lesson? Anybody else struggle with the, the faith, justification by faith? Got to have works, but not the works. The problem is learning as a child to love when we're born in other directions. Yes. And, um, and, and how do you teach that to your children, your grandchildren, whatever? You know, because at some point you have to start it at works. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, you, you teach them to brush their teeth or to do some other behavior, not because they love to do it, right. you know. And then at some point, the belief or the, the trust or whatever, the, you, you agree with that process, yes. you know. And so 
Um, unfortunately, I think it's easy to get stuck at the stage of I have to do this because if I don't, I'm going to get in trouble. <clears throat> those are those stages of moral development. We talked about that last week or two weeks ago as well that it is a place to start either with the agedly immature or the spiritually immature. And we're talked to, we, Paul talks about that we're still, eating, we're still drinking milk. We're still on baby food. And we need to progress past that. And we need to be eating meat. And for me, I mean, you cannot, in my opinion, you cannot give what you don't have. I mean, those of you that are mothers and that take care of everybody else first and run yourselves ragged, it has an impact on how much of you is there and available to give, where if you take a step back, you take care of yourself, take a, take a moment for yourself, then you have more to give. So for me, I'm incapable of loving others the way I should or of performing works that I should if I haven't first been filled with the love of Christ. It's only then can that flow outward. Otherwise, I, I'm bankrupt. I got nothing. I got nothing to give if I'm not filled with that first. Let's close class with prayer. Father God, thank you that you are who you are and that you knew from the foundations of the earth that we would need a physical revelation of that and that you sent your son to show us what we've been missing. Please continue to bless this class. Please continue to reveal more and more of your character to us and uh, give us courage and faith to share this message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.